I take from my text this morning one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, and it comes from our reading for today, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. Please pray with me. Holy God, enlighten our consciousness that we may become aware of you and realize that you have always been here in that still, small voice. Amen. Last week, we started a new sermon series. Always an exciting thing, at least for your preacher. It is a series that looks in depth at the nature and problem of God. In the first sermon, I had a little fun. I asked us all to turn back the clock and imagine our earliest images of God. Then I walked through some of my own adolescent questioning of the concept of the divine. Does intercessory prayer, the type of prayer that asks God to change things, actually work? What do we make of miracles? Why don't we see clearer evidence for God? These are all typical questions that any young person might ask, and they don't go away as we get older and continue to wrestle with God. They still present real and significant issues for our belief in God. But I also argued that it is the problem of evil, how we can have an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God and still have evil that is the most perplexing of all, and rightfully so. I finished the sermon by tracing the evolution of humanity's conception of God, from a God that controls all things directly to a being that is behind the natural processes of the world and then intercedes from time to time from the realm of heaven. I argued that this supernatural, natural divide either leaves us with a weak and irrelevant God or a God who chooses not to prevent evil. Both of these I ruled out and claimed that we need to get beyond that divide and think of, think of God as something other than out there if we're going to engage with God in the 21st century. Our popular concept of God is broken. This is a crisis for all faithful people. We need something else to truly believe. And I promised that this week I would offer one proposal one solution to these issues on God. Today, I have an answer for these perplexing problems. Are you ready? A few weeks ago, I was in Berlin. It's a fascinating city. A weird city, but a fascinating one. One thing I love doing when I visit a new place is to walk everywhere I can. I think there's no better way to see a city than by walking. It allows you to get the feel for a place and its pacing. Each city has its own distinct pulse. Walking also, also lets you run into unexpected sights. So there I was, walking along one of the main streets in Mitte, admiring the architecture and, watch, and people watching, 
when I stumbled across Humboldt University, formerly the University of Berlin. I looked up at its neoclassical buildings, and then it dawned on me, wow, I am actually standing in front of the University of Berlin. I started to become giddy as a schoolboy. My glee originated in the fact that it was there, in that university, in those halls, where the great Friedrich Schleiermacher wrote and taught. I had to stop and take a selfie. (laughs) Actually, I took two, because I'm no good at selfies. Why? Why did I care so much? Well, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who lived from 1768 to 1834, was the first person to answer the questions that we have for today. He solved the problems we face when we talk about God. He was the one who blazed the intellectual trail that opened up a whole new realm of theological thought. Even though you might not have heard of Schleiermacher before today, we all owe him an inestimable debt. Even his great 20th century detractor, Karl Barth, who spent most of his career trying to undermine Schleiermacher, would always refer to him as, quote, the great Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher came of age in the late 18th century, on the heels of the Enlightenment. All of the questions we raised last week had already been wrestled with. David Hume mocked the concept of miracles and showed how truly unlikely they were. Voltaire, the most famous intellectual of his day, was a proud and outspoken atheist. He quipped at one point, As long as there are rogues and fools, there will be religions. Ours is unquestionably the most ridiculous and most absurd and bloodiest that ever infected the world. Isaac Newton and others had explored the physical interactions of the world on a purely scientific basis without the need for God. Deism, the belief in a watchmaker God, who sets the universe in motion and then takes a back seat, was the regnant belief among many intellectuals. That was the intellectual climate that Friedrich Schleiermacher came of age in. But the most important thinker of the day was a fellow Prussian who lived not far from Schleiermacher in the city of Königsberg, Immanuel Kant. While Schleiermacher was in university, Immanuel Kant had already published his great works, including the Critique of Pure Reason. Kant's work demonstrated that we are necessarily subjective beings. We cannot make objective statements about the world because our perspective is limited to our own experience of the world. We interpret everything through the lens of our own experience and lives. Kant's work had major implications for theology and especially for the work of Schleiermacher. Since you cannot make objective statements about the world, you also cannot make broad statements about the nature of God that hold true for all people in all times. You can only make arguments from your own subjective perspective. There is no way to get to the truth of the world through your own reason. You are hopelessly bound up in your own experiences. Kant opened the door for a revolution in theology. Enter the great Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was not interested in making definitive proofs for God. He was a good scholar of Kant. He knew that was impossible. Instead, Schleiermacher focused on what we should do about God. Given the legitimate arguments against God, should we just throw all talk of God out the window? Is God merely a fiction that we make up? Schleiermacher refused to believe this because he himself had experienced the presence of the divine. And that was it. That was the beginning of the great revolution in theology. 
If you could no longer make grand statements about God's existence, what you could do was focus on our own experience of the divine. You could analyze the experience of the divine that people testify to and make those experiences the basis of theology. Do you see the shift? Do you see how significant it is? It's a shift from making propositional statements about God, as Thomas Aquinas did, to talking first about our experiences and going from there. If all human beings, according to Kant, had to make sense of the world around us from our experiences, then our experiences of God could be equally empirically valid. Schleiermacher was the first theologian to make that great shift. God was not to be found in metaphysical reasoning, which was deeply flawed anyway. God is found in our own subjective experience of God, which we could analyze and use for constructing a system of belief. And when Schleiermacher looked closely at his own experience of God, he found God in the feeling of absolute dependence. As humans, we are fundamentally relational creatures. We depend on others for our happiness, fulfillment, and nearly every aspect of our lives. It is that mutual dependence, a give and take, where we feel love, happiness, and fulfillment. But we are not absolutely dependent on anything but God. That feeling of absolute dependence is the core of the God experience. It's that feeling of bliss, of complete self-surrender to something truly greater than ourselves. Here is another key to Schleiermacher's thinking. Schleiermacher was a strong proponent of an imminent God. Traditional Protestant theology made God transcendent, God was up there. God was in control and would exercise control according to God's will. Schleiermacher saw God as the infinite possibility in each finite being. God was literally infused into all creation. There was no supernatural natural divide. God is everywhere, not directing things, but in the midst of things as a loving presence. Jesus was someone who was fully conscious of God's presence in the world, And that was the key to Jesus' divinity. We become redeemed humans insofar as we are able to be like Christ and become fully aware of God consciousness in our lives. In each of our interactions with others, we should feel our absolute dependence on God and therefore be infused with Jesus' compassion, as well as his thirst for justice. I hope you can see how important Schleiermacher's shift from a God of propositional statements to a God interpreted through our subjective experience, is. God's will is always one for goodness and love. When bad things happen, it is because people have shut themselves off from the experience of the divine. Evil is not a result of an indifferent or malicious God. God does not cause things like cancer and hurricanes. But God is always present, even in those times of suffering. Miracles insofar as we experience them, are a result of being in touch with the God-consciousness of the world. On miracles, Schleiermacher wrote, quote, Miracle is simply the religious name for event. Every event, even the most natural and usual, becomes a miracle as soon as the religious view of it can be, can be the dominant. To me, all is miracle, unquote. Prayer, likewise, helps us find that feeling of absolute dependence and shapes and molds us into faithful beings. Schleiermacher, because he was a good student of Kant, was highly suspect of dogmatic statements. Dogmatic statements are useful because they speak to people's experience of the divine, but they should not be the final test of religious fidelity. 
That final test can only come from our, with our own experience of absolute dependence on God. Doctrine is all well and good, but it is secondary to our divine experience and should help lead us to greater awareness of those experiences. Lest you think that the ideas of Schleiermacher were limited to Germany, these same liberal views on God made their way across the Atlantic. Others wrestled with the same questions and came to similar conclusions. Probably the earliest and most articulate American American interpreter of this viewpoint was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson laid out his perspective in a commencement address he gave to the graduates of Harvard Divinity School in 1838. They are the crowd of graduates and local ministers gathered surrounded by the elms of Harvard Yard. Noting the gorgeous setting around them, Emerson began with the celebration of nature. Quote, In this refulgent summer, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life. The grass grows, the buds burst, the meadow is spotted with fire and gold and the tint of flowers. Night brings no gloom to the heart with its welcome shade. Through the transparent darkness, the stars pour their almost spiritual rays. The mystery of nature was never displayed more happily. Unquote. Nature and the world have the potential to elevate the soul. And within our souls, according to Emerson, is written the divine law. We intuitively know what is right and wrong. When we listen to the divine law in our souls calling us to virtue, we know what it is to follow God and to be in touch with God. Quote, the perception of this law of laws awakens in the mind a sentiment which we call the religious sentiment and which makes our highest happiness. This sentiment is divine and deifying. It is the beatitude of man. It makes him illimitable. Of Jesus, Emerson wrote, Jesus Christ belonged to the true race of prophets. He saw with open eye the mystery of the soul. Drawn by its severe harmony, ravished with its beauty, he lived in it and had his being there. He saw that God incarnates himself in man and evermore goes forth anew to take possession of his world. Conversion to belief in God, for Emerson, is not through appeals to sin and redemption or to impossible miraculous events. Quote, To aim to convert a man by miracles is a profanation of the soul. A true conversion, a true Christ, is now, as always, to be made by the reception of beautiful sentiments. The time is coming when all men will see the gift of God to the soul is not a vaunting, overpowering, excluding sanctity, but a sweet, natural goodness, a goodness like thine and mine, and that so invites thine and mine to be and grow. According to Emerson, religious dogma over time have, dogmas over time have squeezed out this communion with the soul. Dogma clouds what we should all be seeing for ourselves. Emerson urged his listeners, yourself a newborn bard of the Holy Ghost, cast behind you all conformity and acquaint men firsthand with deity. Let the breath of life be breathed by you through the religious forms already existing. For if once you are alive, you shall find they become plastic and new. The remedy to the, to the deformity of religion is first soul, second soul, evermore soul. You can see how well Emerson encapsulates the liberal view on God. It's about religious feeling and not metaphysics or ancient doctrinal statements. You find God by looking inside you and your experience of the world. 
God is not some transcendent being up in the clouds of heaven who occasionally deigns to intervene with creation. God infuses everything and all life. God is good and calls us to a higher goodness. That was what Jesus was about, and that's what we should be about. Others followed in this same liberal path as Schleiermacher and Emerson. Horace Bushnell, who was a minister in Hartford, Connecticut, and whose name adorns our heritage walkway outside our meeting house, wrote a treatise on language, among other things. Language varies. Some language is more scientific and exact. I can point to this in front of me and call it a pulpit. While pulpits do vary in shape and size, calling something a pulpit makes it clear that it is an elevated platform for preaching. But other words are not so exact. Words like love or God. These words we know by our experience of them. They defy easy definition. The very nature of of religious language makes a mockery of strict doctrinal statements. Religion is about the experience of God. We use figurative, not scientific language to make sense of that. Ditch the dogma unless it leads you to a deeper experience of the divine. One other key concept for this liberal view on God is what the biologist Stephen Jay Gould called non-overlapping magisteria. Religion and science are two different forms of inquiry into the world, and they do not overlap. Science asks very particular questions. It has methods and language all its own. Science attempts to describe and explain the natural world within its own framework. It deals with provable facts. Religion, on the other hand, asks its own questions. It looks at values, sentiments. It does not, to, it does not, it does not attempt to explain the natural world, but instead why we are here. What is, our, what is the goal and aim of our lives? How are, we, how are we to relate to others? What is eternal and true? Both religion and science err when they try to manage the other. They have their own separate sphere. They cannot answer the questions of the other. This approach goes all the way back to Schleiermacher and is a key component to the liberal view on God. God and things of God concern our souls. Trying to prove miracles or the existence of God is a waste of time for someone who's a liberal Christian. It's about our own experience and transforming ourselves through the experience of God and goodness. We find support for the liberal view on God in many places throughout the Bible. The most famous and enigmatic of these passages is a text we have for today from 1 Kings 19. When the ancient Israelites were trying to describe the experience of God 2,500 years ago, they did not rely on doctrine or dogma. They relied on narrative and the experience of God. Here Elijah is at the end of his line. He is fleeing for his life from Jezebel and makes his way all the way to Horeb, the mountain of God. There God does not appear in some miraculous phenomenon of nature. God appears in the sound of sheer silence. God is imminent and present. But sometimes we have to quiet the world around us to realize that God is there. I hope you have a good sense by now of the liberal view on God. It grew out of a response to the Enlightenment and its insights. While the specific theological nuances have varied over time, its basic tenets have remained the same for 200 years. 
Since I know you relatively well as a congregation, I imagine that the liberal view on God is one that resonates with most of you. Process theology, which Ed Hennig led a class on this summer, is a variant of it. Marcus Borg articulated this liberal view on God eloquently in his writings, though I must add, not as eloquently as Emerson. By studying this tradition more closely and taking apart its arguments, you can become a more effective proponent of this liberal view on God, and you can talk about it with others. Imagine that. Evangelism, old school. (laughs) I hope deep thinking on the liberal view on God can also enrich your own spiritual life and devotional life. Of course, liberal theology is not without its detractors. I'm not talking about fundamentalist Christians, most of whom never took the insights of the scientific revolution or the Enlightenment seriously, and therefore cannot appreciate the roots or need for a liberal view on God. The authentic critique of the liberal view on God grew out of the sense that the liberals, in their attempt to create an intellectually acceptable faith, left behind key elements of what makes Christianity Christian. H. Richard Niebuhr, the famous 20th century UCC theologian and brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, put his critique of liberals and their neglect of Christian doctrine in this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. The question that we will consider next week is what might have been lost in the liberal view on God. Are those things that were lost worthwhile? Is there another intellectually acceptable path for us? We might affirm theological liberalism here, but is there another option? Next week, we will consider post-liberalism. And while you may or may not agree with its view on God, I can guarantee it will get you thinking. (laughs) And while you're at it, be sure to bring some others with you to service.